Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Reconsider, uh, where we don't do the thinking for you, part of the Agora Podcast Network. If you listened to the last episode, you know that we were right in the middle of an engaging conversation with economist Jake Meyer, and then we had technical difficulties. So Jake was yeah, womp womp, seriously. Jake was kind enough to come back so we can finish up our conversation with him. So everyone, once again, welcome back, Jake Meyer. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me again. And good news for you, listeners. I'm back in Boston with a hard line and all my gear. So finally, the technical risk is over and Reconsider is back in full swing. And speaking of Boston, I'll make a quick pitch. For people in the Boston area, Eric and I oh, yeah. will be at the Sound Education Conference at Harvard University on November 2nd and 3rd. We will both be giving talks about things related to Reconsider Issues. So if you want to come meet and greet with us and hear us give a little talk about why World War III hasn't happened and why it pays to polarize, come check it out. Sound Education at Harvard University. We'll put a link in the show notes. So with those those advertisements aside, Jake, I think kind of where we left off was we, we were talking about how there were political cycles and as as sort of the business cycle goes on, capital inflows and outflows from emerging markets to developing markets can have you know deleterious effects on especially emerging markets uh, foreign exchange rates their their currency can depreciate as a result of it and despite the u s sometimes being the cause of where these economic crises come from, it is nevertheless often the destination for where people's money goes to seek security when that downturn comes. So I think that's roughly where we were. And I know Eric had a question to kind of take us forward from that point. Yeah. When my audio broke last time, I was trying desperately to ask it. I was like, maybe I can get this question out, but I could not. So my question is, you know, currencies drop in these other nations and in a way that's bad. But, you know, often for like an exporter driven nation, if we think, I don't know, Maybe Indonesia, certainly Pakistan, certainly China, as we discussed earlier in not in this show, but in the Reconsidering China series, you know, low value currency seems to be a good thing where it allows them to export more stuff, domestic substitution, stimulate the economy, allegedly. And, you know, to what extent are countries really able to affect their you know, their total economic productivity through manipulating 
the currency. I don't want, uh, sorry, that's such a loaded term through changing the value of their currency and, you know, cheapening currency in order to export more. And so to some extent, like if that tends to help, then why is the dropping currency in, say, Pakistan actually such a bad thing? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really interesting question with a lot of elements. So the basic logic of why a weakening currency should be good is that it, it's going to make that country's goods cheaper on international markets, and it's going to make foreign countries' goods expensive in domestic markets, which will shift foreign markets towards buying more of that country's goods and shift domestic consumers to buying also more of that country's goods, which in theory should be expansionary. However, there's also a number of, of, other, of other issues that come into play here. And the largest one is going to be the effects on the domestic financial system if there are a lot of unhedged foreign currency denominated liabilities. So basically what a lot of these countries like Pakistan and Indonesia do is they'll borrow from abroad, whether it's businesses taking out loans or whether it's uh, governments I- issuing bonds, et cetera. But, but typically, or more often than not, this international borrowing by these actors in these countries tends to be denominated in foreign currency. I think I see where you're going with this. More often than not, dollars and euros. So, so what's going to happen here is that if the currency weakens, then they owe more of their domestic currency to, to service these liabilities. And so, and so that can put a lot of stress on domestic businesses. That can put a lot of stress on domestic financial institutions and such. That can, put some, that can put fiscal pressure on the government if the government has a large debt load that's foreign currency denominated, which oftentimes they can. And so you're going to have this effect occurring at the same time that essentially the real income of everyone is falling. Because, because even though you should have a substitution effect between foreign goods, or you should substitute buying domestic goods for foreign goods if the currency gets weaker, what, you, uh, what you'll see more often than not is it takes time for this to occur. So when the currency gets weaker, a lot of times people will, will in the very, very short term, end up having to buy the same sort of goods that they would have otherwise. And then they just buy less of certain other domestic goods. And so you can have these, these effects in asset markets, these effects in sort of compounding this sort of short-term income effect in domestic markets that can kind of kick off these big sorts of crises sometimes. And it also sounds like stability and predictability are important for this because if you're trying to set, you know, ramp up an industry or your economy in an export way by dropping your currency or ramp up an industry by having a tariff, like for people to make that investment, they have to believe that new advantage for them is going to be around for a long time when things, you know, and when you have like volatile currency, they don't actually get that assurance. Yes, yes. And then and then you can even you can even zoom out even farther with this same idea. And, and you could basically and you could basically look at when you see currency values, a lot of times when you're thinking about it very, very simply, weaker is better. But for, for a wide variety of reasons, including, you know, supply chains being so interconnected now, including issues related to a stronger currency allowing you to borrow more cheaply and just various different sorts of, and things like a stronger currency making it cheaper for you to buy imports, which can have other expansionary domestic effects. A lot of times, the benefits of a weak currency 
can often be outweighed by the costs of a weak currency and you know vice versa if we're talking about a strong currency. I guess that's not vice versa, but so it's so, so a lot of times in terms of actually simulating the economy, a weaker currency doesn't do as much as as most people tend to think it does when you're coming at it from the simplistic approach. And there's and there's there's a lot of research out there that's come out in oh I'd say maybe the past 10, 10, 15 years that really supports this and kind of shows that this old school perspective of weaker is better because it simulates exports and that simulates the economy really isn't quite true. And then uh, and then also and then this and this uh, speaks to I think the point that, that you raised uh, second. You also have this issue where where because the benefits and costs of relatively weaker and stronger currencies can oftentimes wash out, what you really want to look for is a stable currency. Because whenever there's changing currency value, there's all sorts of changing prices, whether it's the physical prices of goods, whether it's the prices of servicing your liabilities, whether it's the prices of, of assets and such. And then when that shifts quickly, which, which, it very easily, which it very easily can, if some portion of your cross-border borrowing and buying is unhedged, which it usually is, that can create a lot of instability. And instability is, I mean, almost always extremely costly. Whereas the benefits of a weakening currency um, oftentimes can be uh, mitigated by you know, the costs of a weakening currency. Mm. So I, I'd like to ask you a question actually about countries that depend perhaps more on trade than, than some of their peers. So maybe countries that export 20 or 25 or 30% of their GDP or something like that. Some people will make the argument that for these countries that are heavily dependent upon exports, they are particularly vulnerable to downturns because as the logic goes, global demand decreases. And if your customer is buying less stuff, then you know a slight decrease in demand from the purchasing country results in a great decline in that country's ability to export and therefore their GDP. Now, on the flip side, I, I can also imagine an argument where if because the world is so globally interconnected right now, you're not going to have isolated events of recession. It's going to be a global recession and a global downturn in demand. There will be less demand everywhere. So if a country exports a lot or depends a lot on consumer spending domestically, if demand is down, demand's down everywhere, won't that damage be spread evenly? Do you, do you have a take on that? Do you feel that exporting countries are somewhat more vulnerable or is that not really the case? So countries that have a larger portion of their economy that are tied up in trade, which is the way that, you, like, as, as an economist, we tend to look at it, not so much exports as a portion of GDP, but like exports plus imports, like a measure of openness. But so that's, that's definitely the case. But I'd have, to think, I'd have to think a little more about the sort of mechanisms that you outlined there or that you laid out there. But a lot of times what happens is these countries that are very heavily dependent on trade tend to be the much smaller countries. You're comparing, you know, let's say, let's say Estonia to the U.S. or something. There's the U.S. being a huge country, a huge economy. There's, it, the economy is incredibly diversified. Countries that are very, very small that, that maybe the size of a small U.S. state are much less diversified. So what happens here is that because these countries are much less diversified, they tend to be the countries that have to import a lot in order to uh, just satisfy the domestic demand for a wide variety of goods. And then they also become very, very specialized where they're exporting just a few goods because it's, it's very easy for a country like the U.S. to 
specialize in a fairly broad set of goods. It's very, very tough for a country that's the, that has a population that's smaller than Pasadena to, to really do the same. And so what you tend to and so and so what you tend to see there is that as these countries become smaller, they have a much larger portion of their economy tied up in trade. This means any currency movement will be extremely costly for them because now instead of a weakening currency causing prices to increase in, let's say, 30% of their goods, because 30% of their goods are imports, now it's maybe 60. So, so that so that 10% increase in prices, if we're just assuming a you know one-to-one relationship, increases or weakening of the currency increases prices by you know six percent in a country that imports 60% of their consumption goods and 3% in a country that, that imports 30%, right? What this does here is it makes countries that are very, very small, very sensitive to currency movements because it has a bigger effect on prices. Further, these countries that are very, very small tend to, assuming they have their own currency, tend to have much more volatile currencies unless they engage in very specific policy actions to reduce the volatility. And we can think about this in just a basic sort of idea of how deep the market is for a particular currency. U.S. dollars, there's just unbelievable amounts of people trying to trade U.S. dollars at, at any given moment. So what happens here is that any small, any, you know, any sort of idiosyncratic shift in demand is going to have a very small effect on price. And because so many global goods are denominated in the currency, people have a lot of faith in it, which makes it uh, you know, just more stable. These small countries have the exact opposite. So these small countries are almost caught, you know, again, in a rock and a hard place in, in some ways because their currency values are much more important because they have trade as such large part of their economy. And their currency is more volatile because it's, a, it's, it's not a very deep market for their currency. So, so, so a lot of times these are the countries that are working very, very hard to do whatever they you know, can to keep their currency stable. And when they fail, that can have immense costs for these for these relatively smaller economies. So how about the case of a country like Germany, which is not a small economy? It's something like three point some odd trillion GDP. And I don't know where the trade balance is, but I know that their exports of goods and services as a percent of GDP is something like 45%. They're not going to have as, they're not going to have a currency that fluctuates as much because they don't have direct control over their monetary policy. Would Germany be well insulated from some of the issues of capital flow that we talked about last time in the event of a recession or, or would it not? So that's a, that's a great question, which opens up a whole nother can of worms, which is the, the idea of the currency area. So Germany and a group of other, of other economies in, in the Euro and Europe have this Eurozone, which is a group of economies that all use the same currency. Germany, by joining a, this sort of currency area, or, or I guess by being part of this currency, currency area, I should say, has mitigated one of those issues relative to where they you know, would have been otherwise. Because as you have more countries, more, more actors using this currency, which is what you get when you take Germany that was previously using the mark, and then now you create the euro and France is on it, right? And Italy's on it and Greece is on it, you know, et cetera. And then what this does is it adds that sort of, that sort of depth to the market, which can reduce volatility and can reduce. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The risks that, that can be associated with having a relatively small amount of people in the currency. Now for Germany, which is already one of the biggest economies in the world, this effect is likely on the smaller side. I mean, it's probably there, but if you went to try to measure it, you probably wouldn't be able to differentiate it from, from a non-existent effect. Now countries, now countries like in Eastern Europe that are very, very small that are joining the euro are seeing huge effects in terms of becoming more stable and their currency becoming more stable as this occurs. And so those are the countries that through this mechanism are perhaps benefiting a little more from the euro. That said, there's all different directions you could go with this in terms of talking about the effects of the euro. So for a country like Germany, though, that is perhaps more productive than other countries in the eurozone, then what we can see here is, is, something, is something very often that because they're more productive uh, and such, they can produce goods much more cheaply. And their currency is typically going to be weaker, their real currency, because their prices are lower, their real exchange rate is going to tend to be weaker than countries they're pegged to, or countries that are also in the Eurozone, like, say, Italy, France, Greece. Italy and Greece, the, the big ones. I don't, I don't want to quite throw France under the bus just as much. But as a result of this, that makes it very, very cheap for them to export, because their currency is, is essentially, it's, it's misvalued. They're able to produce goods much more cheaply in terms of the domestic value of their currency than they essentially would otherwise if they were not on the euro because of the effect of the economies of all of these other countries in the eurozone. And what that does then is that makes it very, very easy for Germany to export, to export a lot more goods than they import. And that's, why, that's a huge component of why Germany has trade surpluses or is exporting more than they import because of this effect of the euro. Would they have a surplus anyway, based on the pre-Eurozone current accounts that they had and trade balances that they had? I would expect so, but this is certainly magnifying. Yeah, and we know the Mediterranean countries whose economies struggled massively in the early 2010s were really grumpy with Germany and the Eurozone specifically because of this. Like you had you had people protesting in the streets over, you know, over like currency issues, which is really interesting and and shows just how sophisticated these things can get. And so related to that, we've got the British pound dropping due to Brexit. The euro, I guess, seems somewhat stable. And we have all these other small economies whose currencies are reeling. One question I have is that, you know, the United States was so aggressive in QE3, which, and the other quantitative easings, which for listeners was specifically about just loosening credit um, is a monetary policy. And it's had exchange rates so low for so long that 
I think at least the armchair, like free market economists that I know would try to make the case, would, would like generally in theory make the case that doing this is going to tank, you know, a country's monetary value because, you know, there's a certain demand for dollars and you've just exploded the number of dollars. So the price has to go down, right? Simple supply and demand. And it hasn't. In fact, uh, you know, I, I know from personal experience that before the, you know, before the recession, the Canadian dollar was at parity with the US dollar and everything was freaking expensive up there while I worked there. And of course, as soon as I leave, the Canadian dollar drops like 70 cents or something. And, you know, I missed out on the, on the good times with my greenbacks. But, you know, how on earth did the US dollar become strong over the past 10 years? There's a lot of things that are interesting going on there because, because typically in a sort of traditional framework of analysis, you would, you would say that the, that the increase in the money supply should create inflation and that inflation should reduce the value of the currency domestically. But if you reduce the value of the currency domestically, that should all else equal force the currency to become weaker in international markets. However, we never really saw much of that inflation that we right. would have expected in a traditional framework of uh, analysis. So if that's the case, and there's different ideas here, and some of them I find more persuasive than others. A large one, a large one I think is that, is that much of the currency that was created here at the QEs, it's, it was used to buy bonds, was pushed long-term interest rates low with the idea of trying to expand credit. But a lot of it basically flowed right into the banking sector or banks, excess reserve accounts. So a lot of it never really flowed out into the sort of real economy to create the inflation. It pushed the long-term interest rates down relative to where they would have been otherwise, which you know likely increased long-term investments, which likely reduced deflate or was likely prevented a deflation that we probably would have seen otherwise. But I mean, you know, we'll never fully have the counterfactual, but I think that's, that's a reasonable way to, uh, to understand that. But because it never sort of flooded out full on into the economy as if people had, you know, literally printed dollars and then used those printed dollars in order to buy physical goods, we didn't actually see that, that increase in prices, which would have actually created the weakening currency. And it's also important to keep in mind that while the U.S. was doing QE, most of the rest of the core of the global financial system was doing something of a similar nature. Yeah, I definitely remember back in 2009, there was a lot of folks saying, okay, well, you know, with all of this monetary um, easing, we're going to see really massive inflation rates and it's going to be really, really potentially hazardous. And I'll admit, I was in this camp having just finished up my economics major in university, I'm like, ah, well, low interest rates means inflation, right, guys? And, you know, that's that's the problem with oversimplification of models, but clearly didn't materialize, as you said. And while the Federal Reserve has always had the option of open market operations, which is just bond buying that Jake mentioned, at its disposal, disposal this was really new in the sense of the scale, trillions of dollars worth of bonds which were purchased. So as we go into the end of, of this current business cycle and look to some of the tools that the Fed might have during the next recession, do you see them working towards any sort of novel or unique things like instead of lending money to banks as it has traditionally done and having that 
liquidity sit in these excess reserves accounts, could the Federal Reserve do like direct lending programs to consumers that would then have the money in their pocket and stimulate the economy in a way that mm. using the banks as sort of an intermediate mechanism might not? Is that something we have on the horizon? Can we expect new tools? Yeah. So the thing is, I would think that, or or at least what it seems like to me is that th- th- there definitely is a risk here, which is that if you look at you know the trajectory of interest rates on on a thirty year timeline and policy rates or just uh, different sorts of market rates, they've been with you know oscillation that's associated with the business and you know financial cycles. They've been falling now for about thirty years. So I mean, the issue that's creating is as you get closer to that zero lower bound or that sort of zero interest rate that's very tough to go to go beneath without these sorts of unconventional policies. You're running out of the typical monetary policy tools and then you're having people now debate these sorts of ideas that, uh, that you know that you're throwing out here. A big one, a big one that I've heard a lot is helicopter money. <laughs> and it's 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 more of a sort of joking name where, where the idea is you would have a helicopter dropping cash to everyone whenever you need a monetary stimulus and such. But I do think that that uh, before you get too far into the idea of well, can we get around this zero this zero lower bound and have more and more expansionary monetary policy, even though interest rates are at you know slash below zero depending on the country, you also are running risks of inflation coming back because a huge element of inflation is is essentially that people expect prices to go up, so people raise prices and then the inflation materializes. So so one of the one of the big arguments about, or uh, one of the big potential explanations for, for why we haven't seen inflation yet is that the Fed is doing a great job of convincing people that it knows how to manage inflation. So everyone trusts the Fed to keep inflation around their target. So no one expects it. So no one raises prices. So we don't see inflation. And, and that's kind of, and that's a compelling argument that I think if the Fed starts engaging in monetary policies that that cause inflation to actually start back up, you could see this this sort of this sort of period of low inflation of low inflation that is associated with these big monetary expansions. If that changes, you could see these sorts of monetary expansions that actually create this inflation. And something of like the helicopter money nature or the direct lending is is likely to have some very different effects on short term prices than something like the QE bond buying, which was primarily flowing into reserve accounts. And such, so, so that's the sort of thing that I think you should be careful of. And, and, and I think the people who are coming more from the perspective of, well, if we haven't seen inflation, let's just do more QE. I think that's a very overly simplistic analysis. But it does need to be acknowledged that that we have had massive monetary expansions for well since two thousand eight for the most part, and inflation hasn't risen yet. So something about the framework that was being used, uh, you know, beforehand seems to be incorrect. And something about, uh, and, and we need to figure out exactly why that was before we can confidently go ahead and start using more unconventional monetary policies, in my opinion. Right? And that's something, I, that's something I would you know, personally like to see policymakers being a little more cautious about. I'm like rankling a little bit. Like, I, I guess like normally... One of the worries I've had about these episodes is we just go like, ooh, Jake, tell us about economics. And I, and I don't want to just, well, it's not just that I want to talk more. I love talking. That's why I have a podcast. Because I, I mean, seriously, right? Like, I love the sound of my own voice. If you have a podcast, you have to, otherwise you're going to burn out. But 
you know, I've, there's been this risk of just going like, ah, yes, like, dear listeners, Jake is the authority on all things economics, and you should just listen to him. Don't let us do the thinking for you. Let Jake do it. So I'm glad I have this opportunity to push back a little bit, because one of the things I'm scratching my head about is, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned this kind of like prevailing theory, which you think is plausible, that like the Fed has convinced people that it will keep inflation in line, and therefore inflation will be kept in line. And I know it's getting close to Halloween here, but that sounds a little bit of like spooky economics, where I've always thought of it as a fallacy that, you know, self-fulfilling prophecies are just a thing. And maybe I'm pushing back a little bit on the Keynesians and the animal spirit here, but that, you know, I tend to think that there are these like fundamental realities that, you know, bubbles happen because we deceive ourselves for a while, but then the bubble comes crashing down. And it it sounds a little to me like just saying that, oh, we, we think inflation will be low, so it stays low, sounds like an ongoing self-deception that can come crashing down. You know, it almost sounds like an anti-bubble is my first instinct. And I'm curious as to what you think about that. Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think there's I think there's a lot of vali- uh, validity to that point as well. I mean, I wouldn't it seems plausible to me, but I wouldn't go so far as that as to advocate. And I think it's it's less likely than than this idea that because a lot of the a lot of the money that was created ended up in reserve accounts. Right. It, it flowed in as it flowed into the excess reserve accounts at banks. After the Fed was buying these long-term bonds, in my opinion, I think that's a more plausible explanation. But but I do think the idea of self-fulfilling prophecies is, I do think is very compelling. And and I typically work with them more at looking at financial crises and such, where it's it's very easy to have this sort of idea that you can you can based on one set of expectations you can have one outcome, and if you change nothing but the expectations you could have an, a wildly different outcome it, with bank runs being the go-to example. But I mean, you can have the exact same thing with international bank runs or speculative attacks on currencies, where, where essentially if people think a currency is going to weaken, they'll sell it, which causes it to weaken, which causes a panic, and now you have a crisis and such. So I mean, I think the self-fulfilling prophecy is ideas are, they're very, very powerful in the short and medium term, which is a lot of where these big sort of critical events happen. These, these events where there's some sort of big shift or big crisis. Now, I become more skeptical as we move towards these sort of longer run ideas, which this inflation is definitely one of. But I think the almost bigger aspect of this, where you kind of come back to your point about there being some sort of fundamental reality with the way that the world operates, that you can't kind of wiggle your way around with things like trying to affect expectations and things like this. And, and I think a big thing here is, or a, a bigger way to look at this would be to kind of break down the effects of these monetary expansions on prices versus what they do in asset markets and such. Because it's definitely becoming the case that, that a lot more of these sort of important things that drive you know, buying and spending behavior and such in a modern economy can be very much tied to credit uh, issuance and asset values. More so than what you would than what you would uh, tie directly to things like you know, the sort of real economy, where you know you're going out and buying groceries and such. So with these sort of asset markets becoming more important, these credit markets becoming more important, I think it's it's very much the case that as the money supply increases, you have a lot of quote unquote inflation going into credit and asset markets. And to a certain extent, the idea here was to was to keep a bubble from you know popping or the sort of same pro-cyclical effects that created the bubble 
to to take us back in in the post 2008 period to take us back way farther down than we you know perhaps should have been in equilibrium because if you can you know have a bubble that occurs it makes perfect sense that right. you can also have those same pro cyclical feedback loop effects take this crash way bigger than it should have been otherwise and, and that's and that's kind of the logic to this and I think that's part of this component as well is that as this sort of money supply creates pressure on demand that manifests more so in credit and asset markets than in, you know, real goods, prices and such, you're seeing a lot more happening in the financial system. And a lot of the effects are, are happening in the financial system and less so in prices. So I think that's part of it as well. And I think that ties into the whole idea of these excess reserves being a big component of it. Okay, so based on what you said about the self-fulfilling prophecies, I just had a a revelation where I I realized I agree with at least some of it because specifically the FDIC, which insures your bank account, is does a great job of being there to not ever be used, right? So so like there used to be runs on the bank, and now that you're certain that your bank account is insured by the government, you don't need to go get it out just in case the bank collapses because the government will bail you out, which means that people won't go run on the bank, which means the banks won't collapse, which is kind of cool. So that makes sense. And then my other quick follow question that I realized I just have no idea how it works is, you know, we pumped these trillions of dollars into the, the bank reserves through quantitative easing and then like what happens to that money right you said like it kind of didn't make it out into people's pockets and doesn't get spent so like what the heck happens to those trillions of dollars well so so, so what they were actually doing in in a i guess suppose i guess this is this is a little more of sort of a technical sort of mechanism based thing but but what they were really doing is just switching around numbers and accounts for a lot of these bond buying so what they were so what they were doing here was basically that the bank was giving the fed a bond or, or and then what was happening with the Fed was changing the numbers in a bank account, essentially. So was, even though the whole, the whole you know, conversation has kind of been about physically printing money, a lot, of, a lot of what was happening here with QE was, if we're being quite literal, there wasn't really much printing going on. So it was mostly based on just shifting values in accounts here. Well, so these banks have accounts at the, at the Fed, depending on which you know, branch they're you know, associated with theirs. So if the Fed wants to, they can just change a number in the excess reserve account. And then, and then now the bank can have access to this liquidity here. And in a lot of times there isn't, there isn't, uh, you know, physical right, currency right. being involved in the transaction here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all happening at sort of the, something that conceptually is a little similar to, or that, that in our way of thinking about it is more like broad money supply, yes. but it's technically in the monetary base. All right, so I I'm going to ask a question that, and I and I know it's always dangerous to ask people to offer a perspective on deal with of it, the community, yeah. but that's what I'm going to do. So whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll go for it. <laughs> so so something that's been happening more now that is certainly unorthodox has has been President Trump essentially essentially questioning the independence of the Federal Reserve, saying, you know, I'm really unhappy happy with where interest rates are. They're they need to be lower. And there's obvious reasons why political leaders do this, because lower rates are usually, they stimulate the economy. So politicians want to be reelected. They want the economy to, do, to be doing well when they are up for reelection or people in their party are up for reelection. So it makes sense that this happens. 
But the U.S. has had generally a pretty reliable history of politicians kind of letting the Fed do its independence thing. So is this just bluster? Because as far as I know, it's not like the executive branch actually has any power to do anything about this. Or are economists concerned that, that this might actually somehow impact the Federal Reserve's independence? Yeah, that's a great question here because because it's always interesting to, to compare the sort of power that uh, different sorts of institutions and people who are working within institutions are going to have in fact versus nominally or based on or, or, or based on you know the true letter of the law. So it's it's one of those things that the Fed is nominally independent although on a sort of global scale among the advanced democracies the Fed is actually considered one of the one of the less independent ones I think I think in a lot of sort of the analysis I've seen of it. But but there's a lot of soft power that the presidents can have over the Fed and things like this. So it, it really comes down to how how effectively a president who wanted to do this could apply soft pressure into trying to get the Fed to to, to do what they want to and such. So and that's something that again it's it's really tough to speak for to speak for an entire group of people. But that's something that I think the median economists who works in that area, right? People who are doing, people who are doing like applied micro are probably, probably don't have too strong an opinion. But I think the people who are working in similar areas are probably, are probably aware of it and made uncomfortable by it. But nervous might be a bit of an overstatement, I think, I, I think for maybe the typical economist. But again, that's sort of my perspective on it that it's, it's really tough for me to give a confident answer on. Okay, that actually made me think of a question. And we'll make this the last one so that, Jake, you can get on your way. And it's this. One thing I've always believed is that there might be this problem with the election cycle where, especially if we think of kind of the typical Keynesian approach that, you know, when things are going badly in the economy, you spend money, you open up liquidity, you know, you, you lower interest rates, you take on deficits, et cetera. And then when things are going well in the economy, you should raise interest rates, get, you know, like keep a bubble from forming and get some surpluses so you can pay some of that back, all that good stuff. But I've always figured that when you, you know, if, if you're kind of in getting into bubble mode, nobody knows it's bubble mode because if they did, the bubble would pop, which means that any government official who has power over this at any given time the only thing that they can really do is say, well, maybe we're, we're getting a little hot. Maybe we need to slow it down for the long term. But in the short term, if I do this, I'm the one crashing the party. I'm the one raining on the parade, right? And so what you do is you go like, yep, the good times are like, you have to walk up in front of America and say, guess what? The good times, they're not over, but they've got to slow down. They've got to, you know, the, the party at least is over. And is there any evidence that the campaign cycles or something affect how the government interacts with the economy and perhaps perhaps you know just suggesting maybe in a negative way? Yeah, so there there actually is some evidence of this more so at the global level than the US level because not to get too deep into the empirical analysis sort of sort of perspectives, but a lot of times there's a lot going on that that is, you know, affecting the economy, it's really tough to identify, to identify the effect of something on something else, right? Which is just kind of a basic econometrics almost seems to, you know, boil down to in a lot of contexts. 
So the basic idea here is that in an economy, in the short run, deficits are good, but in the long run, debt is, broadly speaking, bad. And, and with monetary policy, big monetary expansions make the economy look good in the short run, but they create inflation and bubbles and things like that in the long run. So if you're in power for, or I should say, let's say office, if you're, if you're in office here and you know that, and you know that you're, uh, have, have a re-election in one year, you can make things look very good in the short run by increasing spending and cutting taxes, which is going to raise the deficit a lot, accumulate debt, but it's going to make the economy look very good in the short run. And at the same time, if you don't have an independent central bank, if, if uh, you know, the executive or the legislature is running monetary policy in addition to fiscal policy, you can do broadly the same thing with monetary policy. You can increase the money supply in the short run, which will be expansionary, which will lower unemployment, which will um, you know, have these sort of good short run effects, but it'll create inflation in the long run that uh, is, it ends up being very costly. So, so what we end up seeing here, or, or what you end up sometimes seeing, is that economies that don't have an that don't have an independent central bank where the legislature and the executive run monetary policy or economies where there isn't any checks on deficit spending and policy making and such where it's very easy to raise spending and cut taxes in the short run the political actors will tend to just try to goose the economy right before an election with just big deficit spending and trying to keep interest rates low and so this is the sort of thing that if the party's in power and they want to stay in office They'll tend to have, they'll you know tend to try to do this with uh, you know either monetary policy and fiscal policy. There's been some analysis of it with exchange rates. You actually strengthen the exchange rate, which increases the buying power of the currency, which makes people's real income go up and things like that. Just with the idea of winning the next election. And if there aren't checks on this, you'll have essentially politicians doing this continuously. Which, which of course makes the inflation, uh, you know, happen. Makes sort of the bubbles happen. Makes a huge amounts of debt be accumulated and such, which has these long run, these long run negative effects on the economy. And this is something that we call political business cycles. In a lot of cases, it can be tough to identify, but, but there, but there is some evidence out there that it has occurred in some contexts. This is tricky off the top of my head, but but I remember there being a great one, a great one with like Russia, with like Russian social spending. That, that found some great evidence of political business cycles. Um, I, I remember seeing a couple others that were uh, exchange rates. I've seen, I've definitely seen a few that, that are, uh, I've definitely seen a few that are fiscal and monetary policy. I mean, especially when you look at performance of economies with and without an independent central bank, economies with an independent central bank have much lower inflation, generally speaking. So they can then, uh, and so because the independent central bank is removed from the political process, the central bank can just can just do whatever they think is appropriate, and then and then it can prevent this sort of pressure to try to have these big short term monetary expansions, and then which ends up creating this long run inflation and such. This has been a ton of fun as always. Uh, we now have had three opportunities to get to hang out with you and learn a bunch of stuff, all of which is super relevant to you know what we've been seeing in the past year and and some. You know, I think as we talked about some seemingly unprecedented or at least irregular economic trends that, you know, should be, you know, that, that should kind of like perk people's ears up and make them make them think, like, what's going on? Like, why is this different from normal? And, and what could possibly happen from this? So 
as always, super enlightening. Jake, thank you so much for joining us. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. It's always fun coming on and talking about all this stuff. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.